We thank you for your sacrifice that you have called us to be now living sacrifices for you. Lord, as we open your holy scriptures, we ask, Lord, that uh, you show us more of you today. Indeed, you are Emmanuel, God, with us. We have the promise that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you teach us more of, of, of your scriptures. We love you, we thank you, and we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning to you. Before you go running for the doors, I'm not speaking this morning. Be still. So the awe, I owe you. <laughs> two, two quick things, and then I'll get out of your face. Uh, number one, there's still an opportunity for you to take part in the season of giving. Good news, right? Yay. So last week, I was able to share with you one of the traditions that we have here at Sierra Bible Church is we try to bless our pastoral staff, the paid staff, uh, with a kind of a Christmas bonus type of situation because uh, it's Christmas and it's an, a great opportunity for us to bless them as a church. Another way to say thank you uh, for the many hours of service that they put in here. If you'd still like to take you have an opportunity to do so by, you can either drop something in the uh, offering box. If you've got cash, you can grab a little offering envelope and just write on there for staff gift. If you've got a check, you can just write in the memo line. If you uh, give online, you can appropriate it that way. But just, just to let you know, you still have that opportunity to take part in that this week. Second thing, I have the honor of being the hype man this morning. And by that, I mean... I don't know if you're aware, but a unicorn walks amongst our midst. Yes. <laughs> I knew it all along. This is why Apple gave me the unicorn emoji. For this reason. By unicorn, what I mean is my, my family and I have uh, had the opportunity to be a part of a variety of churches in a couple of different states. And one of the things that seems to kind of be a persistent theme in all of these churches is that when it comes to a youth pastor, basically the main requirements are somebody who's relatively good looking, that is somewhat friendly and is willing to be around children for a fair amount of portion of his week. That's basically it. So if you're looking to get into youth pastoring, that's about all you need for most other churches. However, Sierra Bible Church has the metaphorical unicorn, in case you haven't picked that up yet. We don't actually have a unicorn tied up out back. I know, it's kind of disappointing. But better news is that we have the metaphorical unicorn here, where we have a youth pastor in our midst working here full time, who not only is attractive and energetic and has all of those things that you would normally expect to see in a youth pastor, but he also recognizes the one thing that's probably most important, is that the best way to lead your children is to get them to understand that the Word of God is the authority for their life, and to do so in such a way that it actually applies to their day-to-day thinking-making process. That's what John Amon brings to your kids on a weekly basis, and I hope that you are thankful for it. And show your gratitude to him, because he is speaking for us all this morning. So welcome him up, our unicorn, John Amon. <laughs> I'm going to text that motion. 
Oh, man. I don't think I've ever been compared to unicorn. And uh, I think there's like two types of unicorns. There's like the majestic creature that's in uh, myth and lore. Or you have uh, the ones that are stuffed and fuzzy that girls like to carry around. Or shirts that are full of glitter and they have unicorns on them. I'm not sure which one I am, the majestic creature or the fluffy toy, but... Um, good morning. Merry Christmas. Love it. Um, this morning, we are going to continue our Advent series, and we have geared it around the offices of Christ. Uh, Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king, and all those things that he has done for us in our place. And last week, we talked about prophet, Brad Beers, uh, was on that, and then this week I'm talking about priests. And it's a perfect timing because Sam and I are reading through the Old Testament uh, with the goal of, actually the whole Bible within 60 days. It's a goal. Uh, my wife does uh, a much better job. But when Jesse asked me to preach on priesthood, I've already read the first five or six books uh, with Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the establishment of priesthood, and I was like, this would be perfect. I'm already working through this stuff. Um, so this morning, I'm going to have three points, and hopefully I stick to them. If you want to know where we're going this morning, we are talking about priesthood. Um, but first, you need a Bible to make that happen. So raise your hand if you can, if you need a Bible, and the ushers will give you one. This morning, we're going to follow three points. The first one is learning about the priesthood of Israel. The second one is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And the third one is the priesthood of the church. All three which priesthood is used. Um, and what I'm trying to do is walk you through the story of Scripture. We believe at Sierra Bible Church that the Bible is one unified story that centers around Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing to the hope, the Messiah Jesus Christ, for all of mankind. And currently, we are past Jesus being on earth, looking back at what he has done and how that transforms our lives. And so this morning, I don't just want to fill your heads with historical information, but also to challenge you to think about how the work of Christ has changed you and influences you how you live your lives. And the implications are huge. Um, so, if you could, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Um, since I'm trying to walk through a story of Scripture and trace this theme of priesthood, I will be jumping around a lot. But Hebrews 9 is a good uh, starting place for us about what we're going to be talking about. Hebrews 9. Looking at verse 11, um, read with me, if you could stand actually, stand as we honor God's word. It's a tradition that we like to do. So read with me, Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation. 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purifications of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant." Jump down to verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, your behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For them he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father, just think of this time together that you have come to be our high priest, uh, that you have dealt with this issue of sin to bring us back into relationship. And I just pray as we study your word that you would just unify our minds about this beautiful truth, about what you have done for us that we could not on our own, uh, that you have brought redemption, and salvation through uh, the covenant of grace. Bless this time. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, there is going to be a challenge whenever you study Scripture because you are dealing with a culture that is not your own and a large time gap. You are dealing with an, a nation thousands of years ago uh, that have traditions and rituals and ways of doing things that are foreign to us, and some of them, which seem uh, very strange and like, why would you ever do that? That makes, that's weird. I don't know how to think about that. But when we study scripture, you have to be a student. Learn and appreciate a culture that is not your own and see how when Jesus comes on the scene, which we're going to get to, when he speaks about priesthood and what he's doing and sacrifice, if you're a Jew in that time, you would have a whole history of your nation that when Jesus comes as a priest, it makes sense. And so, but when you, if you just jump to the New Testament and jump in talking about Christmas and Jesus coming, uh, you're not going to feel the full weight of it means for God to become man and what he does for you. Unless you trace this theme of priesthood through the Old Testament leading to Jesus. If you do that, what Jesus does, it's just like a beautifully told story that everything just somehow culminates and comes together at the end, which is about Jesus. Um, 
So this morning, we are going to talk about who you are created to be, what the problem is, and why Jesus had to establish something called priests. At one time, priests were not needed, uh, but they were. So the question is, why is a priest needed in the Old Testament in Israel? Uh, Well, I'm glad you asked. You had to go to the Genesis story. What, would you, what were you created for, and what was the world like? Well, the world was created by God, for God, and the culmination of his creation story in the center of his world is you, mankind. God created man in his own image, unique, distinct, to reign and multiply, uh, and there was harmony. It says, Adam actually walked with God. He can meet with him face to face. There is harmony. There was perfection. There is nothing that was uh, injuring or between those relationships. But we were in perfect relationship with God. Uh, and there's a, there's a book by C.S. Lewis. I'll call him a couple times. But he has a book called, I think it's Paralandra is the one it is. He has a space saga, if you didn't know that. But he has a story talking about how this man is sent to Mars essentially by God, and uh, there's different planets, have different creations, and uh, he's sent to Mars, but Mars is a new world with its own Adam and Eve, kind of like Earth, it's a story. So this man goes there, sent by God, because there's another man going to that planet who's going to try to make this Eve of Mars choose to sin. And so this man who's sent by God goes there, and he's trying to tell her and describe her what sin is or brokenness or what it does, uh, but she has no vocabulary for sin. She has no idea of what wrong is. And so if you know our story, the sad thing is that we chose not to follow God's way, but actually to disobey, entering something called sin or evil, or there's a bunch of words we can use, and so... We're going to talk about the problem is something called sin and exactly what are the effects of sin upon us. If you don't know the weight of sin and the gravity of it, what it means for us and the damage it does, Jesus won't really mean much to you. Uh, He'll just be another story or Christmas season that we celebrate by giving gifts and then we move on. Uh, But if you know what sin is, Jesus means everything. The gravity of what he's done for you in the most hopeless situation uh, causes us to worship him. Uh, but there's three things I want to talk about just briefly. The first thing that sin does is sin is described as a corruption or defilement in the Bible. Uh, to corrupt means to change its original use or meaning uh, into something else, reducing its quality or value. Uh, sometimes scripture uses this word uh, called defiled. Uh, defiled means like to be unclean or impure or stained. And so here's an example for you. I went to Atlantis to their buffet, and I had a Chinese pork steamed bun. And I thought it was so good. I was like, well, I got to learn how to make these. Uh, so I got a bamboo steam basket to uh, make these steamed buns. You have to make a dough from scratch. You have to rise the dough, which means you have to use something called yeast. So I'm trying to follow this uh, recipe I found on YouTube and watch this guy make it. And uh, you take yeast, which is actually alive, believe it or not. Uh, yeast is alive. 
and you put it in water to activate these little critters. And uh, you wait some time, and it kind of like balloons a little bit, and you pour it into your flour and your mix, and uh, you make your dough, and then you're supposed to prove it, which means you set aside for like an hour and a half, and the dough like doubles in size and gets really big. So I waited an hour and a half, did the whole thing, put yeast in water, uh, made my dough, and uh, when I took it out of the oven, because you can prove it in the oven at a low temperature, uh, it didn't rise. It looked the exact same. I was like, this, is, this isn't right. I know it's supposed to like, be massive. Why isn't it doing this? Lo and behold, I learned that uh, yeast has a nemesis, and it's called salt. And so I put salt in the water and the yeast together, and I misfollowed the directions. And come to find out, salt murders yeast. <laughs> it literally kills it, so it can't do its job. So when I put salt in there, it just took a little bit of salt, and my yeast died, which means my dough doesn't rise, and I don't have tasty buns. They were like bricks when I tried to make them anyways. <laughs> the same thing is with your sin. Uh, your sin corrupts all of you. It somehow uh, it taints your will, your desires. Uh, you as a human being, you don't just sin, but you yourself become a sinner. It says in Scripture, it takes one. Just obey one part of the law and you're guilty of the whole thing. So sin really defiles and corrupts us. Um, and that wasn't the way we were supposed to be designed. But not only that, but your sin also does this major thing called separation. Sin is like a wedge. It's like how I think about it. If you've ever split wood before or a huge stump that you can't just use an axe, you would use something called a wedge. And normally it's a heavy piece of iron or something. And what you would do is you put it on top of the stump and you would drive it through the wood with some type of sledgehammer. And what that wedge is designed to do is actually to divide and separate those two pieces, to come between them. The same thing is for your sin. Um, it says in Isaiah, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah is speaking to Israel saying, your sins have separated you. They divided you. You no longer can be with God. And that is the same thing goes all the way back to Genesis. When we choose to disobey God, choose our own way, autonomy, self-law, I don't want to obey your law, God. We're going to just define what's good and evil. Do what we want. Uh, and so the consequence is God says, you can't remain here. You can't eat from the tree of life. And he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. And enters in all these curses that is felt upon the world, and uh, not just us, but even culture and creation itself. And so, for example, here, if you are parents, and you just remodeled your living room, and it was old, it was time to update it, and you replaced it with nice white carpet, repainted your walls, you wanted some shabby chic white couches, and your kids happen to be outside on a rainy day, and they found a nice place where rain and mud became one. And so they decided to wrestle around in the mud and, like, get filthy dirty. Imagine if you had your filthy dirty kids, and they come in, and they start wrestling around with each other on your new white couch and across the floor. And then uh, your mud is, like, spread everywhere on your brand new, everything white, shabby chic 
room. If you were a parent, you'd be like, what are you doing? So you realize what you've done. What you're supposed to do is come in the house. You're dirty. You can't sit on my couch. Go take a shower, wash. Then you are able to be clean. And now you can sit on my couch. The same thing is with sin. God's like, listen, if you want to have a relationship with me, uh, pure holiness, perfection, and righteousness, everything good, I can't allow sin and evil and everything that comes along with that to be part of my creation. And it says, we're not allowed to be with God. And you have that separation. That's what sin does. But the third thing it does is, if you follow what sin actually does, is the worst part of sin is it leads eventually to death. Why human beings die? Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The ultimate consequence that is so felt is to watch someone you die, or watch someone you love die, or you yourself have to face the reality of death. Sin is so severe, so ultimate, it demands your very death. And the reason is because, first, you are separated from God, which means the God who made you, who sustains you, when you are removed from that life-giving source, the natural thing is, like, you're going to die. It'd be like unplugging yourself if you were actually on a machine that would keep you alive. Or if you woke up in the morning and you said, Today, I am going to live without breathing. <gasps> That's my last breath. No, you can't. You're, it's vital for you to live is to breathe. Just as vital is to breathe air to work throughout your day, the same thing is for you to actually have your existence and live, you have to be connected to Jesus. But we have chosen, your sin is a willing choice to separate yourself. I will not be with God. Thereby, removing your right to be with God. Okay, you feel the problem? Your problem is sin. And at one time we were created to be with God, but now we're not. But God would have been just as just just to remove and like destroy all of humanity and be done. But he doesn't because God actually has a rescue plan. You know, we could remain our sin or destruction under judgment and wrath. All that terminology is in throughout Scripture. But because of his mercy and grace, he creates a new role. And the new role is called priest. Um, and so not only priest, but he uses the nation Israel to be something called a kingdom of priests. And so you have uh, this new thing called priest. And ooh, sometimes my slides might get a little funky. Yeah, that's at the end. And you see, oh, we'll just leave that up. Um, first thing is, in the Old Testament, God chose priests. He said the priests uh, are going to come from Israel. And if you're an Israelite, you can't just be a priest willy-nilly. You actually have to be specifically from one tribe. That tribe is the tribe of Levi. Not only that, but you have to be related to this guy named Aaron and for being a high priest. And so it says in Hebrews 5.4, No one takes this honor to be a priest for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
And so these priests were made by God, and you had to be a Levite. Uh, not only that, but as a priest, you would serve in a particular place in the temple, which I'm going to see if I can get a picture of it. Um, that is not, well, that's not either. That's, whoa, you guys are learning everything at once. Hey, there we go. Um, whenever Israel encamped, the temple or tabernacle, which signifies the presence of God, was always in the middle. And the priests, who uh, were part of Levi and different families, would be around the temple, and then the rest of the nation of Israel will camp around it. The idea is signifying that God wants to be with his people. Emmanuel, which is what Wayne talked about. And so God creates the way for him to be amongst his people, but he has to create a clean space, you could say, and that's why the tabernacle is built. And the Levites, the priests of Israel, were in charge of taking care of it, um, and watching over it, and it had all these various duties inside there, but it represented the presence of God. But not only that, um, the priest's primary thing was to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And in the Bible, there is five different types of sacrifices uh, that you would give, some which you were voluntary, some were you were obligated. You had to. And so the main purpose of your sacrifices was because this problem is sin. You were corrupt. You were unclean. Your sin made you guilty. And so you can't be in God's presence. So how do you get in God's presence? Well, you have to deal with this thing called sin. And so what you would do is if you are an Israelite and you, are, you commit some sin, maybe you lied. Maybe you stole something. Uh, who knows? You would go to a priest and you say, uh, and you confess your sin. The priest would take some type of animal that you would bring. He would sacrifice it for you. And he would say a prayer on your behalf to God. You couldn't just walk in the temple and do that yourself. You had to go through someone else. Um, and this thing about sacrifices was there was a problem with it we're going to talk about. But those sacrifices were symbols. They were not the ultimate thing, but symbols. When you sacrifice maybe a goat or a cow or maybe you can do pigeons and there's grain offerings, whatever you're sacrificing is a symbol of the consequences of sin. It is a symbol of the consequences of sin. Uh, and so since sin leads to death, when the sacrifice is offered, it is a reminder of the consequences that sin brings, death. Its blood was shed, and blood was known in Israelite's time that that was what gave you life. Um, and it says in... Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You're like, well, that's kind of strange. Like we, as you can see, there's no altar in here and we're not having you bring animals and we're not sacrificing them. Um, that'd be really strange. Um, but in this time, this wouldn't be strange because this is how you would cover over your sins. Not only that, but it was also a symbol of substitution. Where you deserve to die to choose to rebel against God's creation, this lamb or pole or whatever you're sacrificing represents that its life is dying in your place. See the consequences of your sin, death. But also it's like taking your place of where you should be dead. 
But the main, the main duty of a priest was that of a mediator. A mediator. A mediator is someone who is a person between two parties. And we have mediators all the time. You normally use some type of mediator to do something that you cannot do yourself. You do it all the time. Uh, for example, your car breaks down and you have no idea how to fix cars. You need a mechanic. So you go to the mechanic and you pay him and he does what you can't fix your car. Same thing when you work on your house. You have no idea how electricity works. You never knew there was a positive and negative or a ground to keep you safe. So you hire an electrician to work on your house. Uh, you don't know how to plumb. So you hire a plumber who hooks up your shower or your toilet. Who knows? But this isn't uncommon. Our culture, we have meteors for all kinds of things. But a priest would do what an Israelite or normal person could not, be in the presence of God and actually just walk into the Holy of Holies, which was the hot spot of God. Um, Hebrews 5.1 says, Every priest is chosen to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Your priest was the way you had access to God indirectly, but also how you would have your sins covered over. And when Israel would continually sacrifice, it allowed God to actually be with the nation of Israel, but he was confined to only the nation of Israel. If you wanted to be with God, you had to somehow get connected into Israel. Um, but the main thing that the high priest, who is in charge, the main guy, was in charge of is once a year, you had something called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, you had two things. You had a bunch of things, but two major things. You would actually have two goats that would be sacrificed. The first goat would represent something called propitiation. It's a big word. Uh, it has a lot of theology behind it, but let me break it down. Uh, propitiation means it's something that's made for you. It's done for you. And this time it's appeasement or the idea of like satisfying God's wrath and turning God's wrath away from you when you deserve death. And so this was a goat that the priest would take and he would lay his hands on the goat and pray the sins of Israel onto it and he would sacrifice it for the entire nation. Um, but there's also a second goat on the Day of Atonement is the idea of expiation, which means out or from. And what this priest would do is he would take the second goat he would go outside the camp. He would put his hands on his goat, pray the same sins of Israel upon it, and what he would do is rather than kill the goat, he would send it off into the wilderness. And the goat would just go. And the reason why they were required to do that is it was symbolic that one, this, this first sacrifice of this goat shows that this goat is dying in your place. The consequences of your sin but the second one says, when that happens, your sin is taken from you as far as the east from the west. Symbolic that your sin isn't with you anymore. It's covered, it's forgiven, it's gone. And also this high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies and he was the only one allowed to go. No one else could. It was a specific right just to the high priest. But here's a problem. Um, there's a problem with this whole system through the whole Testament of all these laws about sacrifices and how to do them. 
And the first thing is this. When you're sacrificing all these animals and stuff, it's imperfect. Hebrews 7.11, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? Verse 19 of chapter 7, For the law makes nothing perfect. Hebrews 9, 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The problem is these goats and these things that Israel is doing did not actually forgive your sin. It was a temporary covering, which is number two. It's, it's, it never was holding forever. It was temporary. Hebrews 7, 23, the priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So you have generation after generation of priests because they would do something called die. They would represent Israel for a temporary time, and he would die. And so a new priest would have to come in the line. They were temporary. They were flawed. But also, the third thing is they were corrupt. They were supposed to hold the law, obey the law, and also intercede for the people when they break the law for them between God. But Hebrews 5.3 says, He, the priest, is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And when you read the prophets, the prophets just rip in to the priests of Israel. Because we know the priests of Israel actually, over time, don't remain faithful. Uh, Zephaniah 3.4, he says this about Israel's prophets. Israel's prophets are reckless treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Matthew, or Micah 3.11, Israel's leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. And so you have priests who are taking bribes, they're corrupted. They themselves had sinned. Uh, some stories are uh, other nations would hear about the priests of Israel, and one guy was uh, a priest for hire. This guy says, oh, you're a Levite? You can be a priest. Come in my house. I have all these idols I made. Won't you be my priest for them? And so I'll pay you really good. And so this Levite who's a priest says, okay. He becomes a priest for false gods. And you see continually this corruption that continues through all of the Old Testament. But also, like, you have to continue to sacrifice animals. As it says in Hebrews 9, every time you sin, you have to re-sacrifice an animal. It's kind of like, um, it's life. My wife hates doing laundry, and she says, reason why I hate doing laundry? I know they're going to get dirty again. And I'm going to have to do it again. Over and over and over and the same thing is for a sacrifice. You're like, man, I just don't want to keep on doing this. It was necessary. You could have your sin covered, and then uh, you walk out of the tent, and then uh, you steal something, and you have to re-sacrifice again. But the biggest problem with the old ways, the old law and the priests of Israel, was because they were part of the old covenant of the law. They were bound by the law. And it says in Hebrews that the old law is inferior. And God gave this law to actually expose you of your sin. It says the law crushes you. 
It leaves you hopeless. You can never do enough to bring yourself back into the presence of God. It takes one sin and you're guilty of all that stuff. And so it says when God gives the law, it reveals that we do not do two things. We don't love God and we don't love people. When you look at the Ten Commandments, it is split in two. You have five commandments, if you didn't know this, they're all about your relationship to God. The other five are about your relationship with human beings. Do not bear false witness, don't steal, don't murder. When you get to the New Testament and they're asked, they ask Jesus to summarize what's the greatest commandment, Jesus says what? Love God, love people. He just summarized the whole Testament. But the problem with the law is it shows you you do not do that. You actually don't always treat your neighbor with respect. You're not always loving. You're not always patient. That you are actually, your heart itself is bent towards evil, corruption, doing what you want. So it's like the same thing with your phones, this whole thing. When you buy a phone, it's imperfect. It's temporary. <laughs> It always is like made to break down. You continually need to replace it. And every year it says new promises. This will be the only phone you ever need. Till next Christmas season when we have a better camera and more memory and stuff. And then yours is obsolete. The same thing is like this whole idea of like sacrifices. It was only, the only job the entire time in the Old Testament was to point towards Jesus. All these priests are corrupt and the systems and it's imperfect and you have to keep on doing it. We're looking forward to one day where there's going to be a priest who will be a priest forever and he's going to fix this broken system. Hence, number two, the priesthood of Jesus. Here's all your notes for you. Well, just follow along with me. Um, here is the difference. We're going to contrast the priesthood of Jesus with the old priesthood of Aaron and the Levites. First thing is, the priesthood of Jesus is perfect. There is no flaws. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from the time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wash your laundry once, you never wash it again. That washing machine would sell, right? Never do laundry again. But it's saying here, Jesus is able to forgive sins. Where in the Old Testament, when you sacrifice something, it just is a covering. It was temporary. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, when he heals someone, he says, now your sins are forgiven. That's a big, that's a big claim. You can do that. If you are a religious leader, uh, you're part of the Sanhedrin or a high priest or something, they're there and they're listening and seeing Jesus say, I forgive you. They're like... Do you realize what you're doing right now? Only God can actually forgive sins. Not only that, but you have to be a priest. But Jesus on the scene says, I can forgive sins. And they're angered. But it's true that when Jesus is your high priest, he's actually able to forgive your sin once and forever. 
When Jesus is on the cross and you put your faith in him and what he's done on that cross, it says all your sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. He doesn't pay for your sins to be like, oh, shoot, you did something wrong that I didn't see before. Well, now I'm not going to cover your sin. Uh, now you're not saved anymore. That's an error. All the scripture talks about once and for all, forever. He holds you. You never saved yourself in the first place. Jesus had to do it. Number two, it is, like I said, forever. You don't have to keep on doing sacrifices over and over. That's why we're in this room. We're not sacrificing goats or bringing like birds here. Uh, it's not necessary. Uh, Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest used to in the holy places every year, Day of Atonement. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrificing himself. Cool. And the other thing is, where the priests in the Old Testament were corrupt and full of sin, Jesus was sinless. Romans, or actually uh, Hebrews 7, 26. Hebrews 7, 26. For it is fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, he has no need to, like those high priests in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily. It says, like, he has the right to be once and for all because of who he is. He perfectly obeyed the law for you. He was always good. Always love God, love people. Not only that, but 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's really cool about this, he doesn't just sacrifice like some animals and takes them from other people. Jesus himself is a sacrifice. It says like he never committed sin. He never did wrong. The person like who should be the judge is the one who is being judged. It says he actually became your sin for you. He takes on your sinful identity to the cross and crucifies it. He pays the debt by dying. His blood is shed, the symbol of life, for you so you can be cleansed and made new, forgiven of your guilt. Hebrews 9, 11-14. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, he entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or the blood of bulls, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal life. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
See, Jesus gives you the greatest act of love. He died for you. He gave you everything. Not only that, he took all of your sin upon himself by sacrificing for you. And when he does that, he creates a new covenant. So now you have the Old Testament, you have these priests and this sacrificial system, and it's bound by the law. And we know the only thing the law does, really, not only does it show you what it means to love God, but it condemns you, you don't do it. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he says he fulfills the law, he lives perfectly for you, he loves perfectly, and now, because he does that, you have a new covenant. God makes a new promise with you, the church. And it's not by law, but by grace. Freely given. You couldn't earn it. You would never be good enough. And so Jesus willingly gives it to you as a gift. You know, if you could obtain it, it would never be grace anymore. It would cease to be grace. Hebrews 8, 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As a covenant, he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Grace. 9.15 of Hebrews, Therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, where the law condemns you, grace saves. You're covered. You're forgiven. That's what Jesus has done for you. And so... Many of us, uh, we still live like we're underneath the law. We're still acting like we have to be good enough or work our way out or work our way to God. And sometimes it's out of fear. What if I'm not good enough? Maybe God's going to get me. Uh, and the other side is we sometimes like to manipulate God. This is the prosperity gospel, especially with a lot of preachers who are on TV, the most famous ones. Well, the biggest churches are teaching the most uh, wrong teaching. If you do these things, God will bless you. If you do these things, health, wealth, prosperity, it doesn't work like that. You can't manipulate and control God like that. But the beautiful thing is that God has done what you can never do. So that when you put your faith in Jesus, he does something for you. Because he's a high priest, he has a new right, which is you are now a royal priesthood. Let's see if we can get there. Yeah, it just keeps on skipping. There we go. Scripture says, you are a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So your Bible church, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works, your deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Jesus says, now you are a royal priesthood. He doesn't just say priesthood, but he also uses a word called royal, 
which means when Jesus has died and resurrected for you, and you place your faith in Jesus, it says now you are adopted as sons and daughters. And if you know the family of Jesus, Jesus is not just a priest, but also a king. You are sons of a king. You have brand new rights that you didn't have before. You were adopted into God's family. But not only that, it says you are priesthood. Did you know that you are considered a priest? It means a couple of things. The first thing is this. You have access to God anytime you want. I remember when I was here the first year with my friends and uh, we're joining Syria Bible Church and there was a prayer group in the off or the coffee shop and my friend Johnny was looking outside, the door was closed as these people praying and he said to me, did you know, right now, those people are actually speaking to God and he hears them. It was a simple thing to say but it struck me as like, whoa, that's crazy. Also, if you look in the New Testament, there is not a single reference for an office of priest in the church at all. That's why we don't have priests at Sierra Bible Church. I was doing a funeral once and um, finished doing a message in the, the burial, and someone came up and said, thank you, priest. And I was like, oh, that's, I've never heard that one before. And I was like, man, why is it, so, it feels so weird? And now I really understand it's because I'm not a priest for other people. Um, that's... I am a priest in one sense, but you don't have to go through me or Jesse or Wayne to have access to God. That makes us very different from being Catholics. Catholics, you have to go through a priest and habitually confess your sins. And there's nothing in the New Testament that says you have to do that at all. It says now you are a priest. You have access to God. Your mediator is not a man in a booth. Your mediator is God himself, Jesus. He has the most authority there is. Because in the Old Testament, you're confined to the tabernacle, but Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and they're seeing himself. You are a temple of God. The temple has been broken down and has been rebuilt in three days through Jesus. And it says, now the temple of God is in you. You represent God. You have access. The Holy Spirit, God himself is in you. When you speak, he hears. When you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit speaks for you, and then actually reveals your heart to God. How awesome is that? You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to be connected to a certain like, country or like, nationality. You don't have to like, bring animals and sacrifice continually over and over, never actually being seen God face to face, but now you are the temple of God. You have access to Jesus. You now, because you are sons and daughters, have a new right to be with God. But not only are you royal priesthood, it says you are a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Isn't that cool? Here's the application. I'm like, hey, why, why does all this stuff matter? We talk about this whole history of priests and Jesus. If you are a living sacrifice, it means your entire life is dedicated for someone else's behalf. If you look at the sacrifice in the Old Testament, they were given in your place for you. 
And so when it says we, the church, are a living sacrifice, your role as followers of Jesus is to serve people. To give your life up. It's even to follow Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to what? You got to die. And he used all his language of being reborn. And he's saying, like, your old life is over, but your new one is made so that you would serve and love each other. As God has loved you as your high priest and brought you into relationship, you are now called to serve and love people. You give up your rights for the rights of people. You give up some things that are comfortable, sometimes money, sometimes work, possessions, for the needs of others. You give up your desires, your goals, so someone else can complete their goals. The idea is like you're continually thinking about not self and what you want, but what are the needs out there and how can I serve you? And you use what God has given you for the ministry of loving people. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. That is your identity. You are not saved for yourself and to do what you want. You are saved for Jesus and be used by Jesus as a living sacrifice to extend his love that you have received to each other. Going back to the Old Testament, you were made to love God and love people. The law spells it out, what it looks like. And since you are a new creation under the covenant of grace, you are not crushed by the law, but the law is a means of showing how to worship and care for God and each other. Not only that, but what does it mean for a Syria Bible church in this area? Well, another thing it means is you are a representative of Syria Bible church and God. What you do in this community, how you treat people in the workplace, when you're shopping, uh, bumping people like on the road, how you drive even. <laughs> Everything you do influences people's opinion of Jesus and what Christianity is all about. Or they also, you could bring harm upon the name of Syria Bible Church, and sometimes it just takes one of us to give us a bad reputation. Uh, same thing in youth group. I'll have a kid who's new comes, and uh, they'll stop coming after a while and be like, wow, what happened? Like, well, everyone in there isn't really kind or inviting. And I'm like, wait a minute, Everyone? <laughs> What they're trying to say is there's just one person you met, and now I, the whole Sierra Bible Church youth group is guilty. They're, the whole group is like this. Now I'm not going to come. You have a huge responsibility that when you walk outside these doors, you represent Jesus Christ and his church. We represent each other. We're all in this together. And so that's why we have to be careful to work out our salvation with humility always pursuing to become just like Jesus. Uh, we're called to do justice, to do good. The reality of what Christ has done as your high priest shapes your very character. You are saved to do good works, to care for the broken. See your Bible church should feed the hungry. See your Bible church should stand up for those who cannot defend themselves. We should foster, adopt, we should offer kindness, generosity, honesty, patience, goodness to all people, even your enemies. It says, do justice, which is the work of restoring the wholeness of what we should be. Timothy Keller has, he says this, if a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, 
He will do justice, the act of bringing wholeness back, restoring what was lost. If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he is grateful for God's grace. But in his heart, he is far from him. If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best, he doesn't understand the grace he has experienced. And at worst, he has not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you just. God, if you know him as your high priest, you will not be able to remain as you are. You will be changed to become just like Jesus in all those attributes that he mentions so that you become mediators yourself, praying for your neighbor, serving them, speaking the gospel of what Jesus has done with your words. By doing so, you're representing the goodness and the hope and the grace that God offers the world. People are hungry to know God, hungry to know genuine authenticity and real love. People need to know that, and it can only truly be found to the deepest sense in Jesus and in faith in him. By doing so, he makes you a brand new creation. And so we as your Bible Church must represent Jesus well. Become just like him. Is there anything you allow remaining that is not like Jesus? And if so, you are called to repent because those sins have already been paid for. It is not your identity. Those things wrongs you do, you are forgetting about who you actually are. And I think the whole Christianity is a process of actually believing with our hearts what is already true with God. You are washed clean. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are God's people. And nothing's going to stop that. And now our process in this world is actually believing that, catching up to what is already true, and living like Jesus. In doing so, God could be using you to bring people into this new promise of grace and the hope of eternal life, being one day completely with God. Right now, it's only partial, but one day, says Jesus, will return again where he will make all things new, and we, just like Moses, will see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you're God who rescues and saves. May we be just like you your representatives in this world. Amen.